Well, hello, everyone, and welcome to Ghouls in the House. I am Natalie Latofsky. And I'm Arnold T. Blumberg. And today, it's Valentine's Day. We are recording on actual Valentine's Day. Because this is romance for us. And we decided that this would be a Valentine's Day-themed episode. Except, of course, that we're recording it on Valentine's Day, so for everybody listening, it'll be sort of a post-Valentine's Day wrap-up celebration. Our thinking behind it is that this year is the 40th anniversary of what is now considered a horror classic, which is My Bloody Valentine. And we felt like a lot of people probably were going to be watching that this weekend, either just generally over the weekend or today specifically. So how better to cap off that weekend's experience now that you've seen it, and hopefully you've seen it because spoilers ahead, by uh, talking about it with you, with each other, to you. It all makes sense in the end. That's right. Quite a significant anniversary. And I remember well, we've talked about this many times, and I'm sure will many times yet. This movie is from 1981, and it fits right in that era of when I was watching so much stuff when we first got cable, those early years of getting cable. So everything from roughly 79 to 82 are the movies that are all seared into my brain and my bloody valentine was not one that i revisited a lot but i do remember us watching it quite often i mean it was just a thing where if you had a bunch of stuff on over and over again you saw it over and over Mm -hmm. and i also noticed um that the same guy who was the heavy guy meatballs is also in this so for me it was like oh hey it's the guy from meatballs in this and I saw it quite a bit, but it didn't stick with me. And dear listener, the first time he appeared on screen, you can bet he shouted out, hey, it's the guy from Meatballs. <laughs> yeah, of course. <laughs> Why wouldn't I? But one of the things I'm going to lead off with came about uh, rather surprisingly and quickly as a result of planning this episode, is that when we watched My Bloody Valentine, the original, and in keeping with our pattern that we've done in the past, we did feel obligated to then watch the remake from 2009, so we'll talk about both of them. When we watched the original, we went through the movie, enjoyed it, and we'll talk about that in a little bit, and then hit the end credits. And the end credits have a very folksy, typical campfire kind of legend song playing over the end credits that I just instantly fell in love with while the legend they say on a valentine's day is a curse that'll live on and on and no one will know as the years come and go of the horror from long time ago and actually was like surprised that i didn't remember that as a part of the experience of the movie and while we were watching too I think you had said it felt like one of the best endings to a film, like straight through the credits as an ending. Yeah. And to be perfectly honest, cards on the table, my first reaction when I heard it was, that sounds a lot like Paul Williams. And of course, you grow up at a certain era, Paul Williams turned up frequently in a lot of stuff, you know, Muppet movie and Muppet show. And uh, I also remember his song in Secret of Nim, and I'm thinking, boy, that really sounds a lot like him. But I was thinking, wouldn't I have known that? Wouldn't we know? So we started looking it up. We were sitting there while it was still on the end credits playing, thinking, we got to look this up. We watched through to the end of the credits where they list the score and who was involved in that, thinking, well, surely up on screen will pop up 
whoever sang this ballad on the end credits, and it doesn't. It's not on there. Not credited. We do know that Paul Zaza, who also worked on Prom Night, which we just talked about a short time back, and praised the music in that, too. And also worked on uh, Black Christmas, and which I love. And put together all the music for this, but there was that crucial piece missing. And we started hopping online and looking, and the logic for me behind it was, well, if it was what I think it is, I would have known already. And then we started finding a few places, both on YouTube and in a couple other spots, that mentioned that the vocals were by a tenor from Canada named John McDermott. It threw us a little bit because many other places online, including places you would normally expect to see official information, did not mention him at all. I also then found out there was a waxwork, this is the, the label, Waxwork label had put out an anniversary uh, edition of the complete soundtrack of this for the first time ever, I think, the complete soundtrack. It was. In 2016. I didn't have access to that, so I couldn't look at the liner notes, which I'm assuming are pretty exhaustive. And if anybody out there is a My Bloody Valentine fan and owns that, you probably already had answers we didn't. But what I also found interesting was even in the press release and materials that Waxwork put out about it, still didn't mention Mr. McDermott's name. It just said Paul Zaza. So it was at that point that you came up with a solution. Well, my thought was, why not go to the two sources that we think might be involved? So one was to find contact information for the rep for Paul Williams, because you felt very reminiscent in that sound. And the other was to find contact information for John McDermott, because we noticed that on the Wikipedia page for My Bloody Valentine, there was no mention of who sang the ballad at the end. But on John McDermott's Wikipedia page, there was mention of him having sung the song. But here's the problem with Wikipedia. And as you tell your students all the time as a professor, Wikipedia itself is not a source so much as it is a conduit to find sources. So you could go to Wikipedia read something someone put there, and then check the citation to say, okay, where did that come from? And there's your original source. The problem here, there was no original source cited on his Wikipedia page. It just said he did it. So the thought was, let's reach out and see. And maybe no one will get back to us. Maybe somebody will get back to us and say, sorry, you're barking up the wrong tree. We didn't know. So what was it like after 11 o'clock that night? I it guess? was very late and we became very mission oriented yeah. with this. I wrote up a couple emails and I sent it to the management of Paul Williams and I sent it to the management of John McDermott. The next day, by the morning, I believe, I had received a reply from John McDermott's agent who had apparently checked with him and got back to me and she said, yes, uh, he says he did sing that song and he'd like to talk to you about it and he'll be in touch. And within a few hours, I was on the phone with John McDermott talking about his experience working on the soundtrack for My Bloody Valentine, which, counter to what you often find when you talk to someone 40 years later about something like this, as he himself puts it, he remembered it like it was yesterday and was very enthusiastic about discussing his experience working not only on that song, but other aspects of that score. So it became a very impromptu moment to do this little interview as an additional celebration of my bloody Valentine on its anniversary. It was one of the 
more pleasant conversations I've ever had with someone who's worked on a movie that I was interested in, and it was a delight to talk with him. So right now, uh, as an extra bonus for this episode, here is my brief chat with John McDermott. Hey, Arnold, how are you? Okay. I'm really happy to be talking to you. I'd been revisiting My Bloody Valentine for the first time in decades, I think, and I was so taken with the song at the end and really hadn't remembered that. It's a really interesting story. The guy who produced the, the music soundtrack is a guy named Paul Tazza. Paul had me... I did pretty much the entire soundtrack. He just changed my voice a little bit, I think. Everywhere, yeah. And oh. you put the quarter in the jukebox and I'm singing, yeah. Um... <laughs> Uh, but kind of fun, yeah. I mean, uh, it. Uh, I'm not known for for my my bloody Valentine, <laughs> but uh, but it was great doing it. I remember it vividly. So I mean, it was great. I saw one brief snippet somewhere where someone said that you had to do everything really quickly. Was that true? That everything had to be oh, recorded. We we did it. It was over. I think just over the course of like three days. Oh, okay. Or less. Get in and sing, and and I, I remember. <laughs> Yeah, it was. I remember it like it was yesterday. It was one of those things. Paul wanted to get everything done, and and I just stayed at the studio with him. And next song, okay, next tune. <laughs> and do, do you already have like a prior relationship with him? Was that how that started? I went to school with his brother. <laughs> okay. And I used to hang out at their house on weekends all the time because his dad had a pool table, <laughs> and. We'd hang out, not only a pool table, but they had a pool. So this was, you know, it was great. And and Paul's dad um, is a legendary musician mm -hmm. um, by the name of Jack Zaza. And Jack is uh, Jack is a multi-instrumentalist. I think he plays somewhere between probably 15 and 20 instruments, if not more, and played on almost every Gordon Lightfoot album. Oh, wow. But it was one of the foremost... Uh, studio musicians in the country and he and I hit it off we were just we became buds he, he'd let me smoke cigars out at his place <laughs> and he, he, he'd let me come for Chinese food when we went out to, to dinner it was great and, and that's how I got to know Paul uh, his oldest son where were you in your career then at that point when you did this was the were you just starting I mean, out I, I just finished school I had no interest at all. I went to a musical school. I went to St. Michael's Choir School. And Paul knew that I had a pretty good voice. And that's why he asked me. But I can tell you a story that'll, you know, you'll just shake your head. Okay. Are you ready? Sure. 1990, I go on a boat cruise. I'm working for a newspaper. I meet two guys on the boat that are in the music business. I have no idea who they are. I sing Danny Boy on uh, Bar Night in the, uh, where, the, where I was going to sing a, a karaoke tune and the machine broke, so I sang Danny Boy. Now, Roger Ebert was there. Roger sang Blue Suede Shoes before me. Oh, man. And what happened was, uh, after I sang, one of the guys, a scruffy guy, came up, you know, beard and blue jeans, and he says, hey, if you ever do anything with your voice, give me a call, right? Yeah, whatever. <laughs> and he gave me a contact. And 1990, uh, 50th anniversary. And I tapped the shoulder of a couple of people that I had done favors for over the years. And I said, look, I'd like to go in and record an album for my parents' 50th as a gift. There's 12 kids in our family. I'll sing each song that one of the kids would normally sing at home. And I give it to them for their 50th. Nice. I got the money. I went in. I did it. And I thought, this is the greatest thing since sliced bread, John. You've really hit the noggin here. Now, I'm 38 years old at this point. Mm -hmm. 37. 
I remember the guy saying, if you ever do anything with it, uh, give me a call. So I did. I dropped it off at their, at his, at his office. Uh, he handed it to someone who I think owed him a favor and said, you got to release this and put it out. So they did. Uh, they released 2,500 copies. One copy made its way to a national, uh, basically Canada's NPR. Mm-hmm. And so the country heard it. And the next day, the record company couldn't keep up with the demand. It sold just over 100000 in the first year. The guys that I met on the ship were Michael Cole and Bill Ballard, who own CPI Productions, Concert Productions International. Uh, I think if you're in the music business, you know who Michael Cole is, and Billy Ballard. And Billy managed me, and Michael managed me for the first five, six years of my career. The first time I ever went on stage, the first show I ever did, I was the opening act for the Chieftains. Wow. On a national tour. Oh, my. <laughs> That's amazing. So, yeah, at right place, right time. Boy, you just, it just doesn't. And I've left out a bunch of stuff because it would just twist your brain a little bit um, <laughs> on how it all happened. But, yeah. So my career was nowhere when I did my Bloody Valentine. There are a lot of people that have careers that go, like, in a direction that's, like, not at all associated maybe with a particular genre and and they don't it's it's refreshing to have that you not only talk about it but also that you remember it so well a lot of times people also like oh i don't know i i, I don't even remember doing that but clearly it's something oh, that man, stuck I, with you I, I i never made it to university i drag I, 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 I did grade 10 twice because i loved it so much but i i mean i <laughs> Uh, I, I was just honest to God, right place, right time, and it was an amazing thing that happened. But in that 1980, I was, I was looking for work. I, I was working at a gas station, and I was stacking shelves on the midnight shift at a, at a shopping market. And then I got a job with a water treatment company. I was there for a few years, so that yeah, was pretty good. <laughs> well, and then my career took off <laughs> at 38. I really appreciate you talking. Oh man, I'm just, I, I'm just, I'm just thrilled you took the time to, to reach out. That is awesome. Oh, that, that's, that's great. They're not really at all. It. Not at all. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk. I really appreciate it. And uh, now, if you go to go, if you go to my website, go to mcjohnmcdermott.com. Yeah. And just take a look at the bio, and then and and a lot of the other things I didn't tell you will be filled in. <laughs> okay. I'll keep Anya posted, too, because she had asked to make sure she knew when we actually post our episode, which is also, like a lot of things, we the podcast runs on iTunes, so we'll be able to make sure you right. know when it's ready. What's really funny, she called, she called me this afternoon, and she says, do you know a song called The Ballad of Harry Parton? <laughs> I said, yeah, yeah, I said, that, that's, uh, that's my bloody Valentine. <laughs> she says, well, did, did you sing it? I said... Yeah, that's Paul Zaza. That's Jack's kid. He's remember the, all, you know. I said he did my bloody Valentine, and he asked me to sing. As a matter of fact, he asked me to sing the whole soundtrack. <laughs> what? <laughs> I said, yeah, yeah. If you, you go, if you go and look at the movie and just listen, the voice is the same, but it's just he's changed it with the machinery he's got to make it sound like a bunch of different people. That's so it's really cool. That part's the part that actually I find. It, as interesting, if not more so, because one of the things we were really struck by was that unlike a lot of other movies, it was such an interesting and pretty unique musical score throughout. I had no idea that it's like using your vocals through the whole thing, too. It's a really nice touch, the way that yeah. runs all the way through. So that's really cool to know. Paul had, a, Paul had a business with a guy named Fred Mullen, who was a music producer in Nashville now. Mm-hmm. And they 
him and a guy out of, uh, I think the name of the studio was Manta, and it was Andy Hermant was the guy who owned the studio. But they had a business of, of old movies, bad, really bad movies. <laughs> and it was a really booming business. They just bought the licensing to all these terrible movies and 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 made a business out of it. And it was fantastic. <laughs> and uh, Paul was associated with those guys. But I don't think they ever got their hands on, on Bloody Valentine. That was the whole thing. And that was really an amazing opportunity that just kind of came together because you said, hey, how about you email them? I mean, to figure an email costs nothing, so why not try? And I think what blew my mind really in all of this is that it doesn't seem like anyone else had thought to ask. I don't know. I mean, I I should I guess I should have asked him that. But in the midst of the 40th anniversary celebrations happening literally on the weekend of the anniversary, it did seem like he talked in a way that sounded like other people hadn't called him. Like he yeah. wasn't going through this for the sixth time talking about it. And as far as I'm concerned, his vocals on the ballad, that's like the reason to revisit that movie over and over again. So it's like, why wouldn't you want to talk to him about it? And mm -hmm. obviously it was so much fun to get a chance to do that. And he seems like he has such fond memories of it. Again, that's one of those things that gets me when someone's career goes in a very different direction from horror. Like, you're not doing that all the time. And you have this thing in your past that you did. A lot of people maybe not bury it, but they try to say, oh, you know, I don't want to talk. He he was very happy about having done that. It came at a point in his life that was evidently exciting. It was just so refreshing to have that talk. So, I, And we don't we haven't had the opportunity to do that that often. I used to have a lot of fun there was a period through the end of the 90s into the early 2000s where a great deal of my career was doing a lot of entertainment journalism for magazines, both in print and online. And in retrospect, it was a pretty exciting time to get a chance to just get on the phone with somebody and find out, you know, what they were thinking. And it's been a while. So it was really nice to have that chance. We might try that more often, quite frankly, if we have an unanswerable question. Because as it turns out, sometimes if you just ask someone... They'll give you the answer. And no one will know as the years come and go of the horror from long time ago. Now, as for the movie itself, and you already said, and I think our longtime listeners would already know, full spoilers for everything. So we're going to be Very talking about so. the full plots of both versions of this but as we already said this is one of those ones that i think its reputation has risen significantly over the years but it came out in the wake of the big boom so if you track back and it seems like we've really uh and i've been enjoying it we've really seemed to steep ourselves more and more in like slasher movie history as a another subgenre to explore not only that but specifically like canadian slasher yes. movie history well, i mean it's just by virtue of the fact that it was a lot of those movies that really seemed to set the standard mm -hmm. and are still like just some of the best movie making of that genre in that era it's fascinating to me how often articles about these movies will show clips from siskel and ebert where they would just tear these movies apart saying like they're an offense to humanity 
My Bloody Valentine, our next film, is another mad slasher going after mostly women victims, this time in a coal mining town. I'm really getting sick of these pictures. We were both disgusted by My Bloody Valentine, the latest mad slasher movie named after a holiday. Another two no votes for that one. They were way over the top insane in their reactions to this. But even if you agree, granted these movies aren't for everybody, I think one thing that does come across is the Canadian films in particular have a sense of authenticity and character to them that American films did not and certainly do not now. There's there's a reality to it, especially in a movie like this. You And part of it is also you don't recognize anybody. Except the guy from Meatballs. Right, exactly. <laughs> and if you're Canadian, you'd recognize, you know, some people in that. But it's authenticity. They it's feel the, like real people. Yeah, you really feel like you're visiting this town of Valentine Bluffs. Which, as you pointed out early on, how amazing is it to be in a town that gets that decked out for a holiday that isn't Christmas? Mm-hmm. And that's really something. Because whenever you see things in film, it's always about, like, some town that's renamed itself North Pole, or it's, like, Reindeer Hollow <laughs> or something. All right, we got to write that one down do that for Hallmark. I'm sure they've done everything. Plus, if we wrote it, it'd be a slasher. And I'm just say, not sure Hallmark is interested <laughs> Someone's killing the kids of Reindeer Hollow. You go right for the kids, right from the start. Yes, I did. I yeah. did. I did do that. Mm-hmm. That's right. So anyway. <laughs> Spoiler alert, it's Santa Claus. Anyway. <laughs> so yeah, it's kind of fun to see it on film that you have all the streets that are decorated, all the windows. Mm-hmm. And granted, it's possible that in this fictional town, the reason they've gone so all out is because... They hadn't done it for 20 years and, you know, we'll come back around to that. But their enthusiasm is delightful. And the fact that they're all just so excited because this is their namesake town. There is zero explanation as to why the town is called Valentine Bluffs. The Bluffs part is clear because there are bluffs. But I don't know why it's called Valentine Bluffs, but there you go. It was established in the 1800s by Hiram Valentine, mm-hmm. who showed up and said, I will start a mining town here. And they said, we shall call it Valentine Bluffs. I just added that. So there you go. There you go. You have backstory. For Somebody it. put that on Wikipedia. It'll make it real. <laughs> It'll be real. Hiram <laughs> Valentine. I want to see that happen now. Just to step back. So My Bloody Valentine it comes out in... The the first big boom, you have movies like Black Christmas, um, again, Canadian horror movie. Great um, score. Also great score. Halloween, which, of course, most people consider, okay, here's the real flashpoint. But, of course, you can't deny Black Christmas and even movies that preceded that is leading into this. And then Friday the 13th in 1980, by the time you get to 1981... There's a ton of them all over. And I can't remember exactly the years of everything, but I'm thinking once you get to movies like, and I'm thinking it's got to be within 8082, The Burning, Prowler, Funhouse, all these movies coming out all over the place. But this one still has that air of reality to it that makes it stand out. Also, I really came to appreciate in a way I don't think I did younger. There's that thing we all do, and we've talked about this before too, about how you craft an iconic horror figure like Michael Myers or Jason or Freddy. I think the minor look in My Bloody Valentine is a damn good one, actually, for a character. And there's nothing fanciful about it. It's just straightforward. And I also really appreciated, by the way, one of the few things we'll say positive, I guess, about the remake 
they really didn't touch it at all. It's the mm-hmm. same look. There's a vague Darth Vader-esque kind of quality to it, and it's only a few years out from that. There's the breathing, although they don't really play that up too much throughout. Just that gas mask and the whole look of it. And again, Michael Myers-esque with the overalls and all that, but it's just a great silhouette. The pickaxe is good. There's always that thing of like, can you have like one definable weapon, even if they use other things? He's got the pickaxe, he's got the light, which I also thought while we're watching this was a kind of interesting effect dramatically because this guy comes at you, his light is shining in your eyes. It's instantly disorienting and frightening. There's a lot of stuff about this character that I thought was really effective. And it's like the polar opposite of someone hiding in the shadows where you get scenes in Halloween where you have Michael Myers, who's suddenly lit from being nowhere, especially once you get into Halloween 2, and you've got scenes of him in that hospital where he's in a room with someone who doesn't know he's there until suddenly the light changes, and there he is. But this is like the polar opposite, because he's like, I am right here. He brings his lighting rig with him. That's right. He's his own lighting rig, and it's kind of amazing. And for me as well... In watching it, I was really thinking about how cool it must have been the late 70s, early 80s to be able to create a character and create a sort of legend. Because realistically, these are all about legends and creating a legend. And there isn't really a film history yet for them. It's like anything you can think of, if you can get it to market... You're the person who managed to take ownership of that legend. And in this case, it's certainly not the only movie that's ever been made about mining or taking place in a mine. Mines are inherently claustrophobic. They're dark. They're dangerous just on their own without like a crazed psycho killer in them. It's a good look, the setting too, which they shot in a real mine. Yeah, it's fantastic. And how cool it must have been. To be able to say, you know, I've got this idea, let's take this slasher idea and shift it into a mining town. And to be able to just do that and bring it to life is really neat. Well, and like you said, another thing you said early on was it's like a classic campfire story. Mm -hmm. And it comes across well, and like you think about other stuff like Friday 13th, where you get like, for instance... They're sitting around the campfire. What is it in two? And he gives it. Let me tell you about Jason. And Haddonfield remembering what happened with Michael. That's there. I mean, she even says, like, the Myers house. Yeah. Like, everybody knows about that house. The ballad itself basically establishes that so beautifully by giving you the, the... What I love most, I think, about the ballad, just to go back to that, is the fact that, in essence, it feels like that's a song that exists in the world of the movie. Like, we're hearing a song now Yes, that they're actually hearing there. That's their song that they have about Harry Warden. And, and by the way, we should probably step back. So, basically, plot. <laughs> oh, plot, right. That's a thing we usually do. We got carried away again. <laughs> plot who? <laughs> so, akin to many other films like this, which also have time lapses, again, a million other movies terror train Mm -hmm. all these movies love that structure it's the time lapse thing it's been 20 years since the incident but you had the hanniger mine and harry warden was one of the guys down in the mine and they get trapped down there there's uh somebody forgets to flush a line and there's excess methane that causes an explosion so they all get imploded and he's the one survivor 
and he goes after the people that he believes are responsible for it. They also make it very clear that he ate the other miners while he was trapped in there in for a, weeks. In a scene, by the way, that feels like it's just the way it's staged looks completely taken straight out of Dawn of the Dead, which had only just happened a few years earlier. Or Timothy. Yeah. <laughs> Listen, uh, Crow, it's a well-known fact that Timothy was a duck. Oh, wait, wait a minute, let's review huh? here. So it's a duck? Oh, man, it's hungry yeah. as hell. Um, yeah, right. Gee, that leg looks swell. Mm -hmm. So we get that backstory, and then we find out, you know, it's 20 years later, this town has lived in the shadow of this fear of Harry and his revenge. It also sets up the typical slasher thing that often comes up, which is someone in play in front of us is the killer. Who is it? And as we've talked about, there are ones where the mystery is clear, and there are ones where it isn't. I genuinely thought I had pegged early on who it was likely to be, and I was wrong. And I've seen it before, but I'd forgotten, you know. So the reveal of that to me felt pretty satisfying because I didn't expect entirely where it was going. The nice thing, too, about the way the story is structured and the length of the time lapse, that time lapse having been 20 years, is that all of your really main point of view characters in this, most of the characters you spend time with, are in like their early mid-20s which means none of them really have the same kind of relationship to the original mind collapse to Harry Warden's crime spree because they were children at the time. And so the entire town has sort of avoided doing this Valentine's dance and they've decided they're going to bring it back. And in a small town that doesn't have a lot going on, it's such a huge deal for these kids. I mean, we say kids, but really, realistically, they're probably like 24, 25. Yeah. It's um, also worth noting this is a mining town. And between this and the remake, one of the other things I found fascinating was they are both movies that are very much self-aware products of their time in reflecting a mining town. In 1981, you could still sell the idea that a mining town was functional, that mm -hmm. these kids work, you know, a lot of them work at the mine, and that that is still an industry that works get to the remake and that's not the case anymore yeah so so it's yeah it's this town where they don't have a concept of why there hasn't been a valentine's dance in so long but the sheriff and the mayor sure do from the heart comes a warning filled with bloody good cheer remember what happened as the 14th draws near Everybody who's an adult knows. And I got a very, like, Jason Lives vibe from it. Even though, obviously, Jason Lives comes later. Sure. So, really, this is before that. But, you know, I've seen that one so many times it gets seared in. But that's also a society where they have sort of covered up even the name of Crystal Lake at that point, Jason Lives. And the kids only know about Jason as this boogeyman tale. And they don't realize it was a real crime spree that happened and you get that same feel here obviously many years prior and it is sort of the kids think it's funny that the adults all tell this silly ghost story about harry warden in the mines and that it's almost just like this spooky mining legend that nobody takes seriously except the the bartender at the bar who takes it very seriously he's ralph from friday 13th yeah <laughs> he gives us so you're all this is cursed and you're all doomed to doomed you. i'm telling you now this town is accursed 
there are a lot of nice little bits and pieces in here that feel very much like, well, we'll take a little bit from this and a little bit from that. I feel this is a movie that definitely rises above just being an assemblage of parts mm-hmm. from other films. But it picks up on the idea of running the dates on the screen like Halloween. I, I did look it up. It was deliberate, by the way, that at this point Paramount had put out Friday 13th. Paramount puts this out. And when I put it out, the way they decided to structure this movie is it starts on February 12th and it shows it's a Thursday and then Saturday the 14th is Valentine's Day, which means Friday 13th is in the middle. So it's all their properties. And it's all their properties. And it's a cute little nod to Friday 13th. It gets bad on Friday the 13th, but it gets worse on Saturday the 14th. What we would now call an Easter egg. That's right. (laughs) Wrong holiday. Completely different <laughs> holiday. Is there an Easter slasher movie? Uh, we'd have to look it up. I feel I, like like maybe two years ago, Hulu decided they were going to do... Yeah, but I mean uh, old. I mean yeah, like classic. Yeah, I don't know. I mean... Hmm. Gotta look that up. Am I, I feel could, like we I'm We could go some. with uh, Night of the Lepus. It's <laughs> an Easter horror movie, I suppose. Oh my god. All right. Well, maybe not then. <laughs> I gotta look this up. Something about eggs. It would have to be like the eggs contain... Alien? Well, yeah. It's true. And by the way, that's the other thing. You got like the sheriff who seems like if Peter Graves and James Coburn were putting like a fly telepod and just you'd get this guy. They start getting from whoever is doing it the Valentine boxes of chocolates but with an actual heart in it. Which is a great little touch. He's sending notes to the cops. It's very Jack the Ripper. Yeah. So, yeah. Sorry, I sounded a little too excited when you mentioned Jack the Ripper, but... You're very excited about that. I have a great interest in historical serial killers. So yeah, this does feel like there's an aspect of that. The fact that he's cutting hearts out, that's very Jack the Ripper. There's an aspect of that in this that I feel like they're bringing into the modern era. And taunting them. And, that gets yeah. you a little Zodiac killer in there, too, yeah. with the taunts. Yeah, definitely. And so all these things, I think, again, it's less an assemblage of all this and really a very nice blending of all these ideas into something that is very much its own thing and it works Mm -hmm. it also is one of those movies where you go i would say maybe two-thirds of the way through the movie before your sort of point of view characters these kids even realize that there's danger the adults in town know that there's danger the adults in town know that murders have happened, but they're not telling them. They just decide if we cancel the dance and we close things up, then this will all stop and, you know, the kids will be fine. And there's no reason for them to have to even know that this is more than a campfire story. And they're trying to figure out, is Harry Warden back in town? Can we find him? In the olden days of having to find the paper in a filing cabinet, they think he's at a mental institution, but they can't find a record of him. And they're frantically just thinking, if he is here and he is on the loose and this is what he wants us to do, they do the thing that I think is the dumb thing that people do in horror movies just across the ages, which is play by the rules of the villain. Where it's like, he says, if you don't have the dance, I will stop killing. And so you're like, dance canceled. And he's like, there's always going to be another reason to start killing at that point. And it's interesting, the sheriff, we also like the fact that he's pretty sharp. Very. It kind of screws with evidence a little bit. And and that was also one touch. We found the remake. The sheriff in the remake actually puts gloves on when he handles evidence. Well, one glove. 
But I'll, I'll take it. You rarely see a glove yeah. come on. But we did like the fact that this sheriff, he notices the hearts are upside down in the laundromat. He's observant. He's paying attention to what's going on. I remember a couple other things we thought the town itself is so endearing, actually, and feels real. We did think it was odd, though, why there were so many wild dogs loose in the streets of this town. Is that something that's just a thing that we just don't get? I don't know. I guess, dear listeners, if you know the answer, is this a thing that happens in mining towns that we're just not aware of if there's just dogs running about? Or... Two, is this something that happens in Canada that we're not aware of? And, like, I lived in Canada for, like, two years at one point, but I lived in a city, so I really wasn't aware of wild dogs. There were some, like, weird raccoons. Well, this is, like, a remote mining town in 81, so I guess. Uh, Yeah, so I don't know, but there, there were a lot of dogs running around in this town. Something else has struck us at the in the moment. Kudos to this movie. I don't know the timeline of this, but there is a moment in this movie. You get the standard also. There's like the kids, they want to go in the mine and have a party. Not a good idea. Um, Although to be fair, they kind of want to go in the rec room of the mine and have a party, which makes sense right up until they get drunk and then are like, we're so close to the mine. Let's go in there. It makes a little more sense in the original than it does in the remake. Yes. Where they're far less responsible. But in this one, it was interesting to me that it's 1981. The genre is kind of just getting started. And there was a scene where they pointedly had a character pull out a condom and say, yes, I have one, Mm -hmm. which was a touch that we all became very familiar with as a very overt move added to most movies later in the 80s with the AIDS scare. But I was surprised to see it in 81 in this. Mm-hmm. And it's like, this is before I remember that really cropping up. So that was kind of interesting. Not only that, but it was a close up on his hand taking a condom out of the wallet. Not like something where you hear the crinkle of a wrapper or somebody like opening it or something. No, they, they just sh- zoomed right in and they, they were like, it. this is here. Yeah, they're very... Which is very interesting for a film that had absolutely zero nudity. Yes. You had somebody in a bra at the beginning and in at least the final film cut that that made it into theaters there is no nudity in this film there's no nudity in any of the other stuff either so that's that's a good point to mention here we watched this on streaming we watched the 90 minute cut that most of us unless you're real my bloody valentine fan or a scream factory fan are still familiar with after 40 years but one thing i learned in coming back to it for this show that I did not know was that this is one of the movies that was just savaged by edits because of an MPAA back and forth that would have given it an X. And in order to get the R, they were cutting out left and right. Virtually every single kill in the movie is significantly edited to the point where most of the time people are killed in this film. It just like it does that thing where it comes up to the moment the kill is about to happen and then we cut. You don't even stay to watch it, which... As far as I'm concerned, in this movie especially, too, it works fine. The and car- I think it works either way. Yeah. But I did seek out everything. I showed you a couple of the bits. Mm-hmm. I did seek out everything. Probably the most overt one, the longest piece that was missing, is in one of the really nice stylistic moments that then gets one of the few things they picked up in the remake is a part where there's the girl who's she's trapped in the room where they evidently keep all the jumpsuits and masks and everything up on hooks. And they drop from the ceiling. It's a great stylistic piece that builds tension. And comes right from reality, which is so cool. Yeah. And it feels very much like going through like 
laundry and other movies where you're like going mm-hmm. through the, which has also been done in other slasher movies. And he picks her up by the head. And basically we find out later is he, he slams her head on like a shower head and the water's coming out of her mouth. The, the full scene itself actually shows her being put up there and, and dying and blood dripping. All of that was cut out. It's all been restored on like the Scream Factory release. I think it was out before that too. And then there are bits and pieces throughout. The old guy gets, I think, his eyeball poked out, which again, they did in the remake, but in the original it was edited. There are little things like that throughout. There's one killing scene of two, a couple being skewered together that still to this day has never been found. But to be perfectly honest, I'm fine with watching many of the movies we watch with all the gore in it. It can be interesting to see. But I also didn't miss it at all in this one. I like the characters. I thought this is a nicely done movie with a good little mystery. I just didn't feel it needed it. And I didn't miss it. Mm -hmm. And also, of all of the cuts and edits made by the ratings board, it was gore-related, not nudity-related. So even if you put all of the cut footage back in... There's no nudity. There is no nudity. And for me... I'm fine either way. And we've talked about it before. It's like when there's nudity in a film, to me, it needs to feel like it's in service to either the plot or the character development. Oh, what do we get to later then? (laughs) Oh boy, wait, do we get to later? So in this, there really is no need for it for plot or for character development. And if you had it in there, it would just be gratuitously for the audience. Right. And for me... That's the kind of nudity in a film that I just find to be so unnecessary at best and offensive at worst. And so it was great to see a slasher with a whole bunch of people in their 20s instead of their teens who are treated like real people. Not only that, but one of the things that I I had like a short list of like things I really liked about character moments in it or plot moments in it that I really felt stood out. One was, you mentioned earlier about how long it takes before people know what's actually going on. Mm -hmm. I thought it was incredibly well-structured. I thought this was a real shining writing moment. That the moment everybody in our main cast, all the younger people, find out what's happening, they're finding out about two deaths simultaneously. They're all having that party. One of them's been killed in the kitchen. The other guy comes running in because was his girlfriend. Was on the shower head. And this happens at the exact same time. They find out about both independent deaths in two different locations and realize something's going on. It's I just loved that. I thought this is an incredible way to show everything spiraling out of control and to have it converge in one location. It was just really nicely done. And the other thing I liked was you had the girl... By the way, the other thing, too, we mentioned in Prom Night how much we like this, that our, our heavy set guy from Meatballs, I really should remember his name. I keep saying the heavy guy in Meatballs. It's Keith Knight. I, I feel terrible. So Keith Knight. But I, I like the fact that he has a girlfriend in this, and, and weight doesn't matter. It's not mentioned at all. In fact, he's not played for laughs like, uh, like oh, the, the fat guy in the movie. Not at all. And his girlfriend is 1981 Eliza Dushku. Yes. And so anyway, she... And the one who plays the main girl, Sarah, they have a moment where the two of them, you know, on their own in the mines, trying to avoid the killer. And one of them's trying to get the other to get going. And so you got to go, you got to go. And I like this moment with the two of them where it was like they're both trying to survive and they're not relying on anybody else for that. 
They yeah. also have a moment earlier in the film, which is very a la Halloween, where the two of them are just walking down the main street, chatting with each other about their boyfriends. And Sarah, who's sort of our point of view girl, has been dating Axel ever since TJ, who was your boyfriend, just suddenly up and left town, didn't tell anybody where he was going. Now he's back in town, working in the mines. His dad's the mayor. And there's just something very mysterious. We don't know where he's been. We never find out where he went, just that he tried to get out of town. He looks creepy, too. He tried to get out of town, and it didn't work. And he came back, and he just doesn't want to talk about it. But he also still has a thing for Sarah. She seemingly thinks maybe she still has a thing for him. And the two friends, Sarah and Patty, are just walking down the street talking about this. And Patty's trying to ask her, you know, who you're going to choose. She's like, you know, I don't, what if I choose neither of them and just like hang out with you? And it comes down to it at that point where everybody's drinking and the two guys are fighting over her and kind of like hurling her around like an object. And she tells the both of them to like go screw themselves because she's like, what about me? Like, what about what I want in this? The two of you are just shouting about how much either of you wants me in this situation. But hey, I'm a person too. And it was just such a great character moment for her. And something, honestly, you probably wouldn't see in a movie now. Because I feel like now, for the most part, when slasher movies are being made, all of the characters and the women in particular tend to be archetypes instead of real people. It's almost like Cabin in the Woods has a little too much to answer for. It's like as clever as it was, it almost made it worse than better to Mm -hmm. say, here are the archetypes, here's the way a movie works, to the point where just tons of them now are just like, well, I guess that's what we do then. They'll just follow that formula. We just do that. So it's nice to know that she is somebody with agency She's somebody who represents sort of a real dilemma that someone might have between the past and the present and the future and who you want to be with and that it's okay to be conflicted and want both and want neither. And ultimately, it's important for her to be involved in that decision making process because she's a person and not just a prize to be won. And it's great. It's just such a great moment. You're really pulling for her especially from that point on if you weren't already and that's Lori hallier is the actress and cynthia dale is patty and also the two of them two women are central in a pretty tense and nice chase scene too where there it's a chase scene going up Mm -hmm. which is a nice little change of pace where they're trying to go up a ladder that seems like it's just going to go on forever because they're trying to climb out of the mine and ultimately that's an abortive attempt at escape also something that they do in uh, Day of the Dead. Yeah. When they got to climb out of the mine. Yeah. And it's it was a very nice scene. It has a great capper, but it's also a very nice tense scene where they're like, oh, we're trying to help each other get out of there. And clearly represents a reality of all the various ways out of a mine. When the yeah. elevator is not available to you, there's always some kind of staircase is what we've learned from these. And speaking of uh, characters, and now I'm blanking on his name, but there's the friend of theirs who's kind of the the class cut up type of guy i think the character is howard uh that would be alf humphreys then is howard yeah who um very much felt to me 
like he functioned in a way sort of the way Shelley and Friday 13th would in a couple of years. Although, as you pointed out, this guy's like he's already instantly far more likable and everybody gets along with him and he, they like his sense of humor. He's and, sweet. Yeah. Yeah. It's a good character. It's like it, that kind of character, like the Shelley kind of stereotype too often can be an off-putting character, but he's not. And, and I also like that was the thing. Isn't it the scene where they have the fight and she says, screw both of you. And he diffuses the whole thing by doing one of his jokes that he's doing for everybody. And it works. It like He's like, come on, let's get back. Because, again, it's not like diminishing what she's going through. But the point is, they're all there for a party. Let's move on and let her deal with what she's dealing with. And he doesn't. And it's like, there's a guy like that using his ability to make people laugh because it's a good thing for the group. Mm-hmm. It's a nice group of characters, really. And for the most part in this movie, most of the kids who are at the party go home at the end of the night. Right. I mean, you've got a core group of friends and it is a little formulaic in that they're all motoring through and one by one, you're kind of the ones you've gotten to know better get picked off throughout the night. The ones that are kind of on the periphery are the ones who are racing back into town shaken to like find the sheriff and tell him what's going on at the mine, which they successfully do. It's like in movies later, every effort they would have made to get in touch with the authorities would have been thwarted somehow. But they're all able to scatter, get in their cars, drive back into the center of town and tell the sheriff what's going on so that he can bring an entire posse around to the mine. Yeah, it's not like a wholesale massacre. It's not like piles and piles of bodies and endless piles after piles. Like another movie we can talk about in a few minutes. There's also, besides the latter sequence, another thing I like. I mean, it's no Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom, but the minecar sequence toward the end is pretty cool, too, where you have TJ and Axel. Oh, yeah, did we mention? Axel's the killer. Uh, Turns out he witnessed his father being murdered by Harry Warden way back when, and that kind of broke his brain, and he's taken on the persona of the minor. Although he hadn't done anything about it until TJ came back into town and then suddenly it like I think that triggered what, something yeah, for I, him. I think that's clear that that's what it is. And it's like that same like toxicity between them about her. That's what got him like activated, I think is the idea. They have a showdown, which is pretty good for, you know, low budget movie. You know, those guys are doing it. I'm not a sure. A very slow moving. <laughs> very slow. Mine car. They don't want to hurt anybody. But, you know, while they're fighting to the death. And then right before we get the absolutely superb ballad, right at the end, it's one of those kind of eerie, sort of unsettling endings that many of these movies at the time had where Axel doesn't die. And and actually, oh, by the way, that's one of the cut pieces that you can see in the uncut version. When you get to the end, his arm is caught, and we're told, like, you know, his arm, and we see him running away, laughing hysterically, gone completely insane at this point, running back into the darkness, you know, that he's going to, you know, keep doing. Except that his arm is off, and it seems very unlikely he's going to live very long. He's going further into the mine at that point. But in the uncut version, you actually see him sawing his arm off. I, I don't feel it's quite the open ending that it might suggest, because I just can't feel realistically why there'd be any reason. And as we were joking, it's like, okay, suppose he like finds like flame somewhere, cauterizes his, his arm off. It'd still mean that in My Bloody Valentine 2, you'd have a one-armed killer, and that would be odd. 
Unless he just shoves the pickaxe in and then just has a pickaxe arm. It'd be kind of a giveaway at that point. <laughs> you you know who the killer is then. And then we'd flash forward another 10 years. It's like, who could be the killer? Frank, Bob, or Mr. Pickaxe Arm over here? Well, it's not me. <laughs> I'm just imagining like a lineup, you know, like the police lineup where you're behind the two-way mirror and the light comes up. And it's just a whole bunch of people and then one guy with only one arm and the other one's a pickaxe. And you're just like, hmm, it's really know. hard to tell. It's dark. He but... seems shorter. Um, so clearly, you know, it's it's going to be the end for him. But I, what I like about the way they end that with the sort of maniacal laughter and the dark fading into the credits is that it sort of gives you this feeling of this is how the telling of a legend continues. Yeah. That it doesn't matter that we find out that Harry Warden is only responsible for that initial spree and that he was in a mental institution. He died in the mental institution years prior. You know, we find that out at the end. So there's not going to be some situation where Harry Warden comes back to claim, you know, his rightful place as the killer of Valentine Bluffs. But it doesn't matter because... At that point, then Harry Warden is a concept and he's the vehicle for fear and he's the vehicle for the lessons that they're going to try to teach to people going on down the line. And so it doesn't change the fact that the legend is essentially still Harry Warden. Like you can still make him that character Yes. That you tell the kids about of like, you know, you need to brush your teeth or else Harry Warden's going to come get you in your sleep. (laughs) It's actually surprising given that ending and how good this one. Well, I guess it's just a case of what it was like back then. It almost surprises me now looking at it that this one didn't get a sequel. I mean, many of them didn't, you know, but I could almost have seen now I could easily see. You could justify and get something out of a My Bloody Valentine too, but that didn't happen. However, flash forward to the 2000s and that first decade or so, toward the end of that first decade, where virtually every horror franchise in existence was getting a remake, many of them terrible, many of them so-so, and there's a spectrum of them, and we talked about this a lot after watching this particular one last night, there's a spectrum where... There are either ones like the recent one we just talked about for Prom Night that basically buy the rights to the title and do nothing related to the original. At all. (laughs) A sort of disregard that comes from that uh, attitude like the person who did the craft movie recently where they act instead like they're actually trying to fix the first one. Like they feel like, they okay, I got this gig, but it's not because this was good. It's because we're trying to fix it. It's like, all right, maybe they're that's... trying to like reclaim the name and yeah. give you what they think is a better movie to have that name. Well, on the other side of the spectrum, arguably, could be the remake that that becomes so good at being its own thing, like the thing, <laughs> that it's a superb film in its own right. And then there are a lot of the kind that fall in the middle, including I think various degrees of being respectful of or affectionate to the original by saying, all right, we're going to make a movie, but we're also going to make sure we have at least a few touchstones so that fans of the original say oh i remember that bit so we get to 2009's my bloody valentine which technically is my bloody valentine 3d uh and just like friday the 13th and 3d before it and all the 80s stuff and tons of the 2000 stuff didn't the final destination also do 3d they did this one is just a wash in really bad looking cgi poking right out at you 3d 
But it's something kind of charming and silly about that. And we just took to just yelling out 3D every time it happened. I mean, that's my favorite thing to do when we watch Friday the 13th Part 3 um, is to shout 3D every time something comes at you. I guess you could consider it like a drinking game, but we just don't drink. We just yell 3D. I physically can't see 3D movies. So for me, that's like my entire experience of them i get a serious headache from it so yeah i mean i can almost see them but i can't quite well we watched it in 2d anyway and and then you just it really is goofy when the 3d stuff starts but but this one it definitely has its share of nods to the original first of all it's a reworking of the backstory there's still a harry warden there's a hanniger mine There's an incident that takes place. There are flash forwards, although this one needlessly complicates things by doing a one year later and then a 10 year later flash forward. There are two flash forwards in this movie. And not only that, but they make the Harry Warden character someone unlike the original. Basically, in the original, Harry Warden is somebody who's trapped for weeks and weeks and weeks in this mine. Everybody else is dying. He manages to survive by eating the dead, but it just breaks something in his brain and he goes crazy. In the remake, they give you the whole Harry Warden story over the opening credits in like a lenticular newspaper. And it's clear after the collapse and the explosion, which everybody blames on Tom Hanniger, like whose dad owns the mine in this one. And he didn't flush the line. He caused the explosion. Everyone's trapped. But in this one, Harry Warden just kills everyone else he's trapped with with a pickaxe wound to the head so that he can have all the air. And it's like they make it so that in that situation, he instantly becomes a psychotic killer. The moment the explosion happens, he's just like, this air, this air is mine. I'm going to kill you all now. And then one year later, he massacres everybody at the hospital where he wakes up. And when we say everybody, we mean everybody. We really mean everybody. There are more bodies well i say bodies there are more very nicely sculpted silicone models with blood and guts poured on them than you see in most horror movies in their entirety happens in the first 10 minutes of this movie and we're talking people with organs ripped out torsos pulled apart from their legs it's every bit of gore that would have been cut out of the original movie yeah they pack it all into the first five minutes of this film and say, what ratings board? And then Tom faces off against uh, Harry. In the first 10 minutes. In the first 10 minutes, the sheriff saves him. More on the sheriff in a moment. This is like a final showdown already. It was tiring to watch what felt like this is an hour and a half movie that just happened in 10 minutes. And we haven't even really gotten started yet. Yeah, it just, it felt very confusing because... It's only a year after the mine collapse, but all the kids in town are going to go have a party like in the collapsed mine a year later after some of them lost parents in there. Mm -hmm. And, you know, Tom goes with his girlfriend, Sarah, and is like, I guess I'll I'll go to this thing. And he not only when I say he, I mean, Harry Warden not only massacres the entire hospital, he then, I guess, like got an invite to the party and shows up at the mine and massacres the mine, like to the point yeah. where you start walking in the mine and you just see bodies 
everywhere. He's one of the most prolific characters in slasher movie history, and we haven't even gotten started yet. So we kind of get to this showdown where Tom takes a pickaxe to the shoulder, and you've got Axel and his girlfriend Irene, but Axel's really into Sarah, who's dating Tom, but Axel blames Tom for the accident a year earlier. And leaves him to die. Leaves him to die because, you know, Harry Warden is attacking him. And so Axel pulls Sarah and Irene to safety and they basically make eye contact with Tom, who's just like, hello, I'm right here at the entrance to the mine. Drag me out. And he's just like, get in the car. Get in the car. We're going. Here's the thing. We always talk about full spoilers. So spoiler, you know, full spoilers here. Tom's our killer this time. It makes a lot of sense in a very simplistic way. Flip the script from the first movie and make it Tom, TJ, instead of Axel this time. And the thing is, if you really watch it, there's every reason to already expect that's exactly what's going to happen because they abandon him. Mm-hmm. There's not a lot of ways to justify him not being the killer in this one, because if you're going to go with Axel again, he, by the way, becomes the sheriff in the 10 years later part. And a jerk. He's married Sarah. He's having sex with someone else on the side who's having his baby. And yet he's still very willing to get indignant the moment Sarah wants to actually speak to Tom for the first time in 10 years when he's come back in town. Because again, like TJ, Tom's back in town. We were struggling throughout the movie. He's like, well, maybe it'll be Axel. Maybe, it, but except there's no reason to do exactly the same thing as the first one. And once you realize it's going to be that simple, the problem, one of the main problems we have, which we'll cover, is that this movie doesn't really entirely play fair with the way it Never shows Never mind entirely. It straight up does not play fair with well, the audience. Let me lay out a couple things first. I do think everybody in this does a very nice job. Performances are good. Mm-hmm. I think the look of the film is quite good. It's a good-looking movie for the most part. The CGI blood effects and everything never look good. They're terrible. Does not rely on shaky cam, which I appreciate. Yes, that's right. It didn't. So our lead, Tom, who will be the killer, which also, in a meta way, I felt now after the fact, was also kind of obvious. Because it's Jensen Ackles, who at this point was four years into Supernatural. Everybody knows him as one of the brothers everybody loves in that show, if you were into that show. I I didn't. I had to ask who the the main character was. Never watched the show, but I know of him. And it then seems glaringly clear that if Jensen Ackles is doing this movie after four seasons already of Supernatural, it's like he's looking for something different to do. So naturally, why be a hero again? And uh, Kerr Smith plays Axel. He was in Charmed. He was in uh, a number of shows. He was also in Final Destination, by the way. The original Final Destination. Um, I'm racking my brain now trying to imagine him in that. And Jamie King is Sarah. And actually, a lot of people apparently know her as the voice of Ara Singh and Star Wars stuff. So, But I do have to mention that our sheriff from the original Harry Warden time period, which includes the one year later thing, now a retired sheriff in the 10 year later part, is Tom Atkins, one of our favorite people on the planet. And he's got his mustache, so it all feels right to you. It does. He has kind of a beige jacket he's wearing. It's a little bit Halloween 3. It's like you can imagine. He does drink. He's drinking at a bar, as he should. He gets to say a couple really, you know, uh, typical Tom Atkins kind of lines. It's like playing Tom Atkins bingo with the mustache, in the bar, being quippy, stopping a fight. (laughs) He saves Tom in the one year later parts. He's kind of a hero. Mm -hmm. Uh, Turns out he was part of the group that made certain that Harry Warden was dead in this version of things. Very Nightmare on Elm Street. Yeah. You want to take point? I'm retired. 
Then he gets his face ripped off. With Yeah, he does. Mustache and then, first. <laughs> pretty much. And it is a shame. Ultimately, there's him. There's Kevin Teig, who's also a great character actor. I still remember him. Most people of a certain age might remember him from Emergency. I remember him as the owner of the bar and roadhouse. So there's that. But these guys are great character actors. And I won't say wasted because they do a nice job, but this movie is just not really worth all that much. One of the things it does very unfairly is when you find out it is Tom, the conceit they have in this is that Tom has basically become a split personality where he is partly the minor, Harry Warden. He sees him in a mirror. He sees him outside himself. And at the end, a nice little visual touch I did like was he's smashing lights at the end, coming after Sarah. Every time the light smashes, the movie like flashes the minor outfit on him, even though he's no longer wearing it at that point. Mm -hmm. Nice touch. Except there is a major killing scene in the movie where we see the killer put him in a cage, lock him in, and then kill someone while he's watching, which we then find out was him who killed this person, and then he went into the cage and locked himself in. Except the problem is, when the movie showed it to us, basically what that then means is the movie was showing it to us from his perspective as someone so insane that he's outside himself watching his other killer persona doing the killing. That's not fair to the audience, because it doesn't give you a chance to figure out who's doing it. It's like it rules him out for the audience, and then after that point, you're like, well, it's not Tom, because he's locked in a cage, and who else could it be? And one of the thoughts that went through my mind is that in this version of it, Tom's father owns the mine, his father has died, Tom is back in town to settle his father's estate, and Tom's plan is to sell the mine, take the money... And good luck, town. I hate you all. And the thought is, well, maybe it's people who are sort of trying to get back at him. It's like, if you want to sell this mine, we're going to make it absolutely worthless because we're going to make it so that this place is just a cautionary tale and it's got the stigma of all the murders and nobody's going to want to work here so go ahead and sell it but you're not going to get anything for it and that's sort of the feel that you get that maybe the town is trying to sabotage the mine or sabotage him right but then you think but why would they then take out like the town elders who they love so much and who have saved the town before it doesn't make any sense. And so I really detest this type of storytelling because there is no way for the audience to figure it out. Right. And it's like there are movies like Scream, which is, you know, obviously we've talked about many times before, a favorite for me. And in all of the Scream movies, once you know who the killer is, you could go back through the movie and figure out where the characters were at which point and how the killer got into the outfit. And if it's a case of a Scream where there's two killers, which is most of the screams you can figure out which one was doing which killing and it all makes sense 
in this, it's not fair to the audience because there's no way you can figure that out because you're being shown a lie and you're not even given any indication at the time that maybe it's a lie. Like all they had to do was have him blink and have the minor like pop in, pop out or have well, him shake or something. The problem with that though is if they did that at that point in the movie, you'd already be able to figure out that it was him and they didn't want you to. Maybe or you just think he's having a panic attack because right. he is taking yeah. medication throughout the True. film for all of the fear and the stress Fair and enough. whatever. Yeah. So I mean there's ways to do it, but ultimately what they do is they lie to the audience, they stigmatize mental illness because Good point. he went through a very traumatic experience. And he yeah. ends up in a mental institution, which after going through that kind of trauma is completely rational that somebody would go and seek treatment. It's interesting. In 2009, a movie keeps having characters at the end say he was in a mental institution as if that tells you he's the killer. And it's like, it's 2009. Are we really doing this? Yeah, you get to the end and one's I found something out about Tom and you're going to have to hear this. And he gets on the phone with Sarah and he's like, Sarah, he spent seven years in, a, in an insane asylum. And she's looking at him like, I better crash this car to get out of here. Like that to me is the crazy part. There are plenty of movies in the past where mental institution is instant code word for murderer, mm -hmm. which, of course, plenty of these movies. As much as I love it, I mean, come on, Halloween and Michael Myers. It's like it's, the difference there is that he kills someone first and then they send him away. He went to the away. institution for that. Right. Yeah. Tom, in this case, went to the institution because of uh, post-traumatic stress disorder. I mean, basically being... a whole series of yeah, traumas. Right. He had the trauma of being in the mine and not knowing whether or not he himself caused the explosion right. that led to these people's deaths. He had the trauma of a year later seeing all his friends get butchered, watching his girlfriend leave him behind while he got a pickaxe to the shoulder. Like, that is enough to put anybody in a state where they're going to need some treatment. And in the end, what it turns out is that no, he's just crazy. He's crazy. That's why he does it. You got to fear the crazy person. And it bothered me a lot that ultimately that's all it came down to is that they can't trust him because he's been in the mental institution. And as it turns out, they're right. And yeah. that's, it, it that's the worst that. part. It validates yeah. it. There's other stuff in this too that's problematic. And, and again, this is one of those things we qualify these things. We talk about how we're, we're all for movies where we could see some gore and stuff. If that's works in the context of the movie, it works. Like we said, the original My Bloody Valentine didn't feel like it was necessary. So it didn't feel like it was missing. And then there are also times, like you've said earlier, where if nudity is in service to something particular to character plot, you could see there might be a reason where something like that could happen. And then you get to a movie like this. And what's also particularly, I feel, I'll just flat out say offensive about this particular sequence is how it's the only one. Actually, in a way, like it almost feels like if there was more consistent nudity throughout mm -hmm. or toplessness or, you know, lack of clothing, you'd Someone's say, butt. Oh, yeah, you'd say, okay, that's something this move, this movie's doing that throughout. Instead, there is one isolated sequence in this film where Axel's girlfriend from the one year later, Irene. Yeah, no longer his girlfriend. Now with a, with a trucker, is at a motel having sex and it was one of the most over-the-top, fully nude sex scenes I've seen in an R-rated movie. She's right sitting on top of him. They're going at it. And you see him naked from the back because it's America. So that's how that works. Mm -hmm. And she's fully in view. And not only that, spends the rest of this sequence completely nude, in which, of course, naturally, given the movie it is, she's also screaming and running for her life because while being completely nude is also about to be murdered. 
And in a way that also, by the time it gets to the end of that sequence, where he's got her, like, trapped by a bed frame, takes too long. It definitely starts to edge into cruelty. And that whole sequence feels so wrong. It feels like it was a fetish of a producer who wouldn't fund the film unless they put in his fetish material that he could enjoy. Because there's just no reason for it. I could accept that there's a reason for the nudity in the sex scene. Where if you just kind of want to establish like she's wild and free and this is what she does and she's, you know in essentially a love hotel having sex with a trucker and this is her trajectory as a character 10 years after the trauma of watching all her friends die. I'm with you on that and I can buy that and I'm okay with the sex nudity happening there but then to have her chase the trucker through the parking lot because she found out he filmed their encounter she's nude the whole time. Yeah. I told you if we weren't watching this for the podcast I would have turned it off at that point and I wouldn't have even watched the rest of it and had time to hate that too. (laughs) So, I mean, it just doesn't make any sense to me. It's just a situation where I think what bothers me is I can't figure out the why. I just can't. There isn't any. There isn't any. And there's no other nudity. There is no sexual component to the killer or to the kill's 90% of the time that she's in this film, she's nude. Yeah. And the other thing that really, really bothered me in terms of character work, and specifically the women in the movie. Actually, there were two more things that really bothered me in terms of character work and the women in this movie. The first is the same thing that bothers me every time I watch Friday the 13th Part 3, which is they go out of their way to tell you that a character is pregnant. And then brutally murder her. And the pregnancy is ostensibly not really part of the plot at all. It's a little closer to saying it's part of the plot in this one because it's the woman that Axel's having an affair with who's pregnant. In Friday the 13th, she's just a character who's pregnant and then she gets murdered. But it just feels like it's being done to make it extra brutal when she dies because you never have a scene where he talks to her again and says like, you know, what do you want to do? I'm married. How do we handle this? There's no character development around the pregnancy. I mean, like we already covered, he's a terrible person. He treats his wife like garbage for even daring to want to talk to an old boyfriend who is a mutual friend. Granted, we know he's going to be the killer, but that's inconsequential. He treats her like she doesn't have a right to make decisions while he's, meanwhile, having this affair that's already led to an unwanted pregnancy. And he's the sheriff in addition to everything else. He's a horrible human being, yet he winds up being our de facto hero in this because we don't have anybody left. I guess... You said there were two things? There are. The third thing that really bothers me is that they, in this one, introduce the character of a housekeeper who's there for the sheriff's family. It sounds like she's sort of a bit of a nanny, a bit of a housekeeper. She'll do the laundry. She watches their son while she's at work running her parents' grocery store and he's at work as the sheriff. The kid really doesn't have any role in this either. He There's like, no point to even He watches TV and hides behind a couch once. Yeah. 
they have this housekeeper character who they introduce as Rosa. And she's the only other person of color in the entire movie besides the black sheriff. And she's the one who they do the homage with to the laundromat scene from the first movie where she gets killed and stuffed in a dryer. It's just one of those where it just feels extra brutal at that point that she has no relation to any of the people in the original plot. In the same way, I think it feels like when the owner of the motel gets killed. Like if this is supposed to be revenge, there's no reason to kill the hotel proprietor. There's no reason to kill the nanny, except that they just wanted to do it on screen. And there's no reason to kill the mistress either. It just is adding to the body count. That scene, by the way, when we find, was it Megan Mm -hmm. afterward? Very Jack the Ripper-like. Very. Right down to having something on the wall. Ultimately, it goes too far in some places. I did think sort of the supermarket showdown with uh, Sarah and Megan was a pretty good action sequence. Yeah. And also, basically all of the violence in that showdown happens in the back office, which was probably on a set because they were probably told, like, you can run through the grocery store, but please don't knock over the little Debbie display because we're going to have to pay corporate for that. So they actually get, like, chased through the supermarket, but nobody's throwing things or, like, pushing displays down in the aisles because they probably... Probably we're just trying to like not screw up the supermarket. But also, I guess, in sort of talking about it being actually filmed in Pennsylvania in a small town, sort of in mining country, it was sort of the other element I think you felt they did well in terms of portraying what a mining town would be like in 2009 in Pennsylvania. Yeah, I, I thought the one thing I, I argue that they did with some thoughtfulness was, I guess in Canada in 1981, you could still depict a mining town as a place where, even though it does definitely feel like everybody's sort of trapped there, it's still a functioning industry. You can make a living. You can't possibly make that case in 2009 and certainly not in Pennsylvania. And I spent a lot of time with a good friend well before that taking road trips all the time to towns in Pennsylvania that were quite literally ghost towns, mining towns that were just empty facades with a few people sitting on porches staring as sad of like people thinking, what's life now? And that's the way a lot of these towns are. If you're going to do a mining town in 2009... It can't be a viable thing. So I think this movie does a very nice job of showing a town that clearly has seen better days. The mine is itself a ghost, which works really well with the idea of, you know, there are ghosts in this town. In some ways, I think the saddest part of this is there are elements of this that would be good in a better movie. And this isn't it. Mm -hmm. I could see that. And the town itself still does have personality. And in a way, I think to us in particular, that felt very familiar. We live like 20 minutes from the Pennsylvania border. I mean, we've driven through Pennsylvania on many occasions, both of us separately and together. We know what it feels like in a small town in Pennsylvania. And it really does feel like that. We thought that bridge was New Hope. We we did. We saw, I mean, I guess it sort of speaks to if you're someone who lives on the East Coast, there are a lot of areas on the East Coast where you can drive to a different city in a different state but if it was built around the same time it all feels the same yeah i once took a friend of mine who was in town visiting on a trip to philadelphia from baltimore he was so confused because looking around he was like this just feels like i'm in baltimore 
And I'm like, yeah, because everything was <laughs> built around the same time. Right. And so we're in an area of the city where it's a completely different city. It's a different experience. There's lots to see and do there. But if you're just looking at the architecture and you're just looking at the structures, it pretty much looks like Baltimore. Boston kind of looks the same way in a lot of areas, too. And there's this bridge in New Hope. You could walk across the bridge into New Jersey. And there's a scene in this where it was Tom and Sarah walking, walking across the bridge. bridge. It looks so identical. We thought, did they shoot this in New Hope? Except they shot most of it in, I'm not sure it's Catanning or Kittening. I mean, knowing the way local people pronounce the name, you don't know what it is, but it's Katanning. And you can even see that name on, what was it, the ambulance? The ambulance. So it's just that the bridges are very similar because probably same time. For all we know, same architect, who knows. Um, but not the actual name of the imaginary town, which they didn't call Valentine Bluffs. They called Harmony. Harmony. Because Harmony. that makes sense in my bloody Valentine. Where everything is wonderful in Harmony. And worst of all, no ballad. No ballad. This is the thing that also got me. They got the hearts in the boxes. They do the, the dryer laundromat thing. Uh, clothes falling from the ceiling thing. They do that again. There are moments throughout where they do the nods that say, we understand. You're, here's some fun stuff for fans of the original. Of course, the miner himself is just straight. There's right. no changes. And yet here's this incredible opportunity in a movie in 2009, which could have been terrible, too, from our perspective, because they could have gotten somebody awful. But you'd think... Given how extraordinary the ballad is at the end of the first one and how that's such a gem from that first movie, make it your own in the remake, end the movie with the ballad, but do a new version of it. And it's amazing to me that they missed that obvious opportunity to do a 2009 remix of the Ballad of Harry Warden. It's something we both loved about the, I guess, sort of soft reboot is what you would call the 2018 Halloween. There is the song in Halloween that Jamie Lee Curtis is oh. singing as she's walking down the street. Right. You know, we've talked about it before, but essentially the takeaway is they told her just make up a song because we can't afford to get the rights to anything on our shoestring. Mm -hmm. So when they did the reboot in 2018, they recorded a version of that song that she had made up and they have it playing on the radio yeah. in the car. And it's such a wonderful little nod. And I would argue you almost don't even need to re-record it even. You could do the same thing where you have it on the radio of like somebody rolling through town, a radio station in that small town playing it. Yeah. And then do it again in the credits as like a rock ballad and make it something new. And I don't know for the life of me why they didn't. And a lot of people when talking about this film, and we've seen a lot of people talking about it recently because it's been 40 years, a lot of people talk about the ballad as part of the viewing experience. So it kind of blows my mind that they wouldn't do it. And I don't know, did they consider it? Did they not consider it? Could they not do it or what? But Obviously, they didn't call John McDermott because he would have done it. <laughs> I think so. And he would have done a great job of it. It's It doesn't make any sense to me why you wouldn't include it. it. And this one, by the way, also ends with a more deliberate opening for a sequel. Very much so. Um, they, they end again with a couple, only this one has an H2O Halloween resurrection kind of ending where he puts on another miner's outfit, a rescue guy's outfit, and he's going to get away. And he actually just looks right out at us like, yeah, I'm still here. I did it. And it's like, yeah, but you're not getting it too. You're not getting <laughs> You're not getting it, too. Thanks for listening to Ghouls in the House, featuring Natalie B. Litovsky and R.L.T. Blumberg. You can find Natalie on Twitter at N.B. Litovsky, that's N.B. Lit of Sky, and Arnold at Dr. The Dead, that's me. Our movies this episode were 
My Bloody Valentine, 1981, and My Bloody Valentine, 2009. Fools oh, in the House is an ATB Publishing production. Check out our other podcasts, books on your favorite fictional worlds, and other assorted goodies at www.atbpublishing.com. Cancel a dancer, it'll happen thrice. Oh, well, that's it. Oh, well, that's it. The dance is canceled.